Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do turn to you now and we pray really in accord with Jesus who prayed to you the night that he was arrested. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we ask today that you would sanctify our hearts, that you would set us aside for your purposes and for service to Jesus as we come now to his word and as we submit to it in the power of your spirit so that we would live for him. Lord, bless us in that way for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture lesson this morning is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and you'll find that on page 947 of the Pew Bible. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Come to the end of our series on the renewal of the mind. We began actually by quoting Romans 12, verse 2, where Paul speaks about the renewal of the mind. And what we have seen thus far is that the renewed mind knows God. The renewed mind meditates on God's Word. The renewed mind trusts in Christ. And now we'll see that the renewed mind leads to a transformed life. So read with me here Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as li- a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I would think that with every step towards Mount Moriah, Abraham's anxiety must have been increasing as he knew as he walked with his only son, Isaac, the son of the promise, to fulfill the request that God had put before him to sacrifice his own son to God. And yet he did. He took Isaac and he bundled up the wood And they went off towards Mount Moriah. God had asked him to do what was unthinkable to Abraham, and that is to give up his most prized possession in all the world, his son, the son of the promise. In his mind, his only opportunity to have a son at his late stage in life. And yet, do you remember how He bound Isaac and put him on the altar and just as he was about to plunge the dagger into his heart, the angel of the Lord stopped him. Why? Because as the angel of the Lord said, now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God wants total consecration to Him. Total devotion to Him. After all, isn't that actually what God has done for us? You might say total consecration to His people. Total devotion to His people. For it was God who did not withhold His own Son, His only Son, but gave Him up for us. In fact, He went through with sacrificing His own Son 
even though he did not ask Abraham to go through with sacrificing his son. God never asks us to do what he has not first done for us. Remember that. God never asks us to do what he has not first done for us. And God has totally devoted himself to his people. And in return, he asks us to completely devote ourselves to him. Total consecration. Christ gave everything for us. And now what he says here is, as the operative word says, present yourselves, offer yourselves, give yourselves completely to God. And when we do, you see what the end result is, is perfect unity, perfect fellowship, perfect joy with God and with his people. This is what he wants from us. And it is the end of the gospel of grace that we would give ourselves in total devotion to him as he has given us given uh, himself to us in total devotion. And so this devotion that he asked for, we could speak of it in three ways. First of all, it is characterized by offering our whole being to God. It is characterized by offering our whole being to God. Paul's command here in chapter 12 is very straightforward. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now he's using Old Testament language here of the sacrificial system. There were some sacrifices that were presented in the temple to atone for sin, to cleanse us of our guilt. Then there were sacrifices that were simply meant as an offering to God as a symbol of devotion to Him. That I am devoting myself to You. I am devoting all that I possess to You. All that I have is Yours. And what Paul is saying here is that our whole being is to be a living sacrifice to God. Now the thought in your mind might be, well, if, if that's the calling to be a living sacrifice, what is it that God wants from me today? What does He want me to sacrifice to Him today? But He doesn't ask you to make a sacrifice. He asks you to be a sacrifice. And those are two different things. One is to say, I'll, I'll give up X to God because that's what He wants from me. And the other is to say, God wants me. Not just what I have. He wants all of me. He wants my whole life to be a living sacrifice to Him. And to take pleasure in that. To rejoice in the fact that I can give myself to Him because He has given Himself to me. And so His intention here is not merely to take the things that we have, which is often our suspicion, isn't it? That He will merely take things from us. When actuality, what He wants is He wants us. So the question is not, what do I have that God wants? But rather, what part of myself am I unwilling to give to God? What part of myself am I unwilling to give to God? Paul mentions here mind and body in the text. He speaks of presenting your bodies as living sacrifices and speaks of the renewal of your mind. This whole being, in other words, is to be devoted to God. But it is interesting that he speaks here of our physical bodies. 
that we're to present our bodies, he says. The word used for physical bodies in other places. That is what we are to present to God as a living sacrifice. And that's because everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say is done in the body, isn't it? And our bodies belong to Jesus. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He asked them, do you not know that your bodies are, are members of Christ? They belong to Jesus. And he goes on to say, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Our bodies are the instruments that God has given to us by which we can serve Him and be a living sacrifice to Him. Now in Paul's day, Greek philosophy reigned. And in Greek philosophy, it was the spirit realm that mattered. The physical realm was not nearly as important. And for that reason, it wasn't so important what you did in the body. And therefore, you could do anything in the body. Which is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks to these Corinthian Christians who have been participating in the practices of pagan Greek culture and giving their bodies to temple prostitutes and yet going into worship and giving their spirits to God. And what God, Paul says here in Romans chapter 12 is no, it's a whole-bodied experience of giving yourself to Jesus. Now in our day, it's the opposite, you might say. It's more of body worship in our culture than anything else, isn't it? We worship our bodies in various ways. What we wear, how we exercise it, the things that we put on it, how we groom it, the way we present it to other people. Our bodies become the temples of worship and there's a real obsession, you might say, with the body. The amount of time, the amount of money, the amount of energy that's spent in Western culture on beautifying the body. And in a way for many people, it's also a way to build their own esteem about who they are by beautifying the body and finding self-worth in the body. But that's not the purpose for which God gave it to us. He gave it to us that we might use it as instruments of righteousness that's what Paul said back in chapter 6 of Romans. Do not present your members, that is your body parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So every part of my body is to be used for God. It's to be sacrificed to God. It's to be given over and devoted to Him. It's for that reason that Job made a covenant with his eyes never to look lustfully on upon, a, upon a woman. It's for that reason that our ears ought to be used not for delighting in gossip, but delighting in the truth. Not for delighting in our own opinions that are contrary to the Word of God, but delighting in the truth. Our tongues are to be used for encouraging one another. Building one another up rather than creating division. Our tongues are to be used for apologizing, confessing our sin and saying, I'm so sorry. 
They are to be used for speaking truth rather than error. For thanksgiving. For praying in humility. And most of all, for boasting in Christ rather than boasting in ourselves. Our hands are to be used to give an honest day's work for honest day's pay. So that when we get up every morning, we look at our hands and we say, these hands are committed to Jesus. These eyes are committed to Jesus. These ears are committed to Jesus. My whole being is devoted to Him. God wants all of us. The question is, how can we go further today in giving ourselves to Him? How can we go further today in giving ourselves to Him? Now returning here to Paul's sacrificial imagery, Old Testament sacrifices were killed before they were put on the altar. And yet Paul speaks here of this living sacrifice. Now if you were to put an animal for sacrifice on the altar first, what would be its natural inclination? To crawl off the altar, right? My friends, the same is true of us at times as living sacrifices. We want to crawl off the altar rather than being sacrificed to God and fully devoted to Him. And so if that's the case, what do we need? Well, we need the motivation of the Gospel. And that's the second point here about this life of total devotion. It is motivated by the mercies of God. Paul says here in verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's making a pastoral appeal. I, I appeal to you. I urge you. I plead with you. Here is a man who knew what it was like to resist God. To fight against Christ. In many ways to persecute Jesus. And then come to the point where he relented. and He gave up trying to as we've just said, crawl off the altar and then give His life as a living sacrifice. And He's saying, I'm appealing to you. I'm pleading with you. Go further in your commitment to Jesus. And yet Paul and none of the apostles ever appeal to us to commit ourselves to Christ more fully until they have first laid the foundations of the Gospel. The mercies of God. So that it's in view of God's mercies that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Now you've probably heard how biblical scholars have talked about the indicative and the imperative model of the Scriptures. That is to say, that the indicative, the facts about the Gospel, the graciousness of God that's revealed in the person and the works of who Jesus is, are the foundation of the imperatives, the commands of what we are to do. Because God has done this, because He has loved us, therefore, Paul says, I appeal to you. And so here, what He has done in the book of Romans, and you might take this as an outline for Romans, He has revealed our guilt. Chapters 1-3, through three are, He has condemned all of humanity before God as guilty in sin. And then grace... The end of chapter 3 through chapter 11, here is the grace of the Gospel. And then from chapter 12 through 16, gratitude 
Therefore, here is how you ought to live as children of God. And he talks about in chapters 12 through 16, how we ought to love one another, how we ought to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another, how we ought to be submissive to authority, how we ought to care for the weaker brother. All of these things flow out of the heart that knows the mercies of God. You, I'm sure, know of the acronym WWJD. It's been on bracelets and t-shirts and things like that for probably 15 years now. And there's nothing wrong with asking what would Jesus do in this particular circumstance. But before we ask what would Jesus do, we need to have another set of bracelets on our other arm that says, what has Jesus done? W-H-J-D. Because as Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher, once said, If we take one look at ourselves, we must first take a hundred looks at Christ and all that Jesus has done in His cross. So that it's out of the mercies of God that we begin to obey Him and offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Him. This is the way in which the Gospel ought to work in our lives. Paul did not say at the beginning of Romans, for I am not ashamed of my efforts for they are the power of man for salvation. No, he said, for I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because what? It is the power of God for salvation. And that ought to be our motto too. God's power at work in me. His mercies at work in my life. And when I grasp that, I want to go further in my devotion to Him because I understand His mercies. If you've ever heard of Jonathan Edwards, the great American Presbyterian preacher and theologian, then most likely you've heard of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's the one that he's most well known for, and yet it doesn't encapsulate all that he believed about Christ and the Gospel. And yet in that, he gives this illustration to his own people. And he speaks of the mercies of God to them by saying, you are like a person who is being dangled over the pit of hell as a sinner. And if you do not believe in Jesus, it is as if the flames of hell are lapping up at your feet and you are suspended by merely a spider's web. And if that spider's web were to break, you would plunge because of the guilt of your sins into the pit of hell and be burned and consumed forever and ever. But because of the great mercies of God, Jesus was plunged into the pit of hell for us. So that we are not plunged in the pit of hell and condemned forever. And when we begin to understand the mercies of God that way, that Christ has absorbed the wrath of God for me. That He has adopted this spiritual orphan who has sought to find satisfaction in everything other than God and made me His own and claimed me and given me His name. That He has freed me from the powers of sin that would dominate my life. From unbelief that would lead me off into all types of self-destructive tendencies. And that one day He promises that He will glorify me and make me radiant like Christ. And when I begin to understand those kinds of mercies, 
And how can I not give myself in devotion to Him? Unfortunately, we often find ourselves looking to the law as motivation to live the Christian life. Martin Luther said these words, Run, sinner, run, the law demands, but gives him neither feet nor hands. A new gospel, new law the gospel brings. It bids him fly and gives him wings. That's why we serve God. Because the gospel, it bids us to fly and it gives us the wings to do it. And when we contemplate the mercies of God, what Paul goes on to say here in verse 1, we present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now the word there is logikos, from which we get logical. It is your logical worship. When I contemplate the mercies of God, how could I do anything else but give my life to Him? It is the most logical, the most reasonable thing that I could possibly do is to give myself away to the One who has given Himself to me. And so here Paul says the fuel for our devotion should be the mercies of God. And the renewed mind is constantly contemplating the mercies of God. Well, finally, not only are we motivated by the mercies of God, but also... This devotion is accomplished through the renewal of our minds. It's accomplished through the renewal of our minds. Now he says here in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There is this contrast, a, a negative, do not be conformed to this world, and a positive, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This negative here, this command not to be conformed is literally not to be conformed to this age. That is to say, this present age that is passing away versus the age that is to come, the age that is eternal, the age that will last forever, the age in which the kingdom of righteousness reigns, the age in which Jesus reigns. And so we're not to be conformed to the patterns, the ways of life, the expectations, the beliefs that are characteristic of this particular age. We're not to be wrapped up in the entanglements of living for what this particular age has to offer to us. We're not to value the things that the people of this age value. And if we were to ask ourselves, what are some of the thoughts of this age that can shape our thinking? In fact, I would encourage you to do that when you go home today. What are some of the thoughts and views of this age that shape the way in which I think and the way in which I live in this world? Is it that I just need a little bit more? Is it that I feel a sense of entitlement to certain things? Paul goes on to talk about how we're to submit our own desires so that we do not trample on the weaker brother. Or do we simply claim our rights and say, I'm entitled to this. Or it might be that I have an expectation that somehow this life is going to fulfill me. There's going to be something here that's going to give me lasting value and treasure. 
Maybe that it's along with the rest of the culture, a little bit of sin is okay. Or do we take Jesus at His word? That we're to take it so seriously that we're to cut off our right hand and gouge out our right eye if it causes us to sin. Or maybe it's something so simple that fashion is what is really important. More important than caring for the poor. Sounds strange that anyone would think that, but sometimes we live that way, don't we? Because we spend more on fashion than we do on the poor. Jesus says, if you've given to the least of these, you've given to me. In other words, there needs to be some renewal of our thinking, or otherwise we're conformed, reshaped to the patterns of this age. Rather than thinking vertically, we're thinking horizontally. What can this age give to me instead of what can the age to come have in store? And how can I live for that age that is to come? And so he says also that we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Now it's interesting that he uses the passive tense here. Be conformed. Or be transformed. That's because if we're not careful, if we're not proactive, if we're not initiating right thinking, then the world is conforming us. We're being conformed. Now how do we be transformed passively? It's a work of God. But He tells us to do something. He says, renew your minds in this. We're to be renewed in our mind, to have our minds sanctified, our thoughts reshaped by the Word of God. The mercies of God ought to grow larger in our thinking all the time so that we want to give ourselves in devotion to Jesus. In other words, when we have the mind of Christ, then we find that we are being transformed into His image. And let me give you an illustration of this for the next few minutes and I'll sort of close with this about how we're transformed by the renewal of our mind and it comes by way of the life of John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader and he was a pastor. Those are the two things that he's known for. He was reared in a family in which his mother was a Christian, his father was not. His mother taught him the Scriptures and the Gospel from a very young age. His father wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, in many ways, didn't want much to do with John. There was no emotional intimacy between John and his father, who was a sea captain by trade. Now, young John Newton grew up eventually to become a very rebellious teenager. In fact, he grew to hate God, becoming an atheist being bitter in his soul towards the Lord and choosing to live a life of the blasphemer. And that's the way in which he continued to grow up as an adult. He was eventually press-ganged by the Royal Navy into service on the Harwich, a man of war. And during that time, his love for a young girl named Polly made him desert the ship when it was at port and flee until he was caught and eventually was whipped by the cat of nine tails on board until he was submissive, only because physically he could do no other. 
He was eventually transferred from this particular Royal Navy ship to a uh, uh, trading ship called the Pegasus. On board the Pegasus, he was such a thorn in the side of the captain that eventually the captain wanted to get rid of him. His talk was worse than any other sailor on board. He drank. He was despicable. He became the person who riled up everyone against the authorities on the ship until finally the captain said enough and gave him away to a slave trader who took him to an island off the African coast and employed him in his service as a slave trader. Now, this man by the name of Amos Clow had a wife who didn't take to John. And when Amos was gone, she nearly killed John by the way in which she treated him because she despised him so much. Maybe it was because of the way that he lived. Eventually, she convinced her husband that John was stealing from him. So much so that Amos tied, or rather chained John to the, uh, to the uh, deck of the ship as they went upriver for slave trading purposes. So that for a week, John was chained to the deck of the ship, enduring the heat, enduring the storms, without food and without water, because his employer despised him so much. Now eventually he was freed from that particular um, boss and found himself in another position as a slave trader where he really became depraved. Giving himself to alcohol, giving himself to witchcraft, slave hunting, and what we would call today a sexual predator. He was about as foul of a person as you could possibly get. He was eventually tricked by another sea captain in an effort to bring him home to his father. And he found himself on board the Greyhound. And on a sea voyage from North America across the Atlantic, the Greyhound entered into a massive storm that broke open a hole in its bow and it began to sink. And for the first time in his life, John began to call on the mercies of God. In fact, he even writes about it by speaking of how he immediately recognized his words. It was, uh, I was instantly struck by my own words. This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy in many years. And he began to pray. Now, eventually they safely landed in Ireland at Londonderry. And about this time, it's, uh, he says, I began to know that there is a God who hears and answers prayer. And he was a changed man. He had come to know the Lord in faith. Now eventually, even as a believer, he was offered to be the captain of the Brownlow, a slave trading ship. Now you might think that odd for a Christian man to be given the post as captain on a slave trading ship. But here, John had basically been nursed in this culture, this mindset that says that slavery is justified. And so for a number of years, he continued on in the slave trade industry, actually writing of it and saying, I had no moral qualms with it. It was not until later that he became so convicted of it that he was a powerful force in the abolitionist movement. Actually, one of the great voices behind William Wilberforce, who was a political man and led parliament 
towards abolishing slavery in the whole British Empire. Why? Because eventually John Newton's mind was renewed so that there was no more hostility towards God. So that eventually he began to think God's thoughts after him and realize I have been living in sin my whole life. And even the ways in which I have been conformed by the culture around me need to be shed from my life so that I could be transformed. And as a result of that, slavery ended in the entire British Empire. Think what great things might be done through you if your mind is renewed for God. So that now you're transformed more and more into His image. And my friends, when you take on that mindset and put into practice what He commands, look at what happens. We'll close with this. He says at the end of verse 2 that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, by testing, by putting it into practice, by submitting my mind to Him, by following what He says is good and right, all of a sudden I take pleasure in it. I begin to delight in it. And I see that it is good, that it is acceptable, that it is fully acceptable to me. And that it is perfect. And That's what I want to do. And we could say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. I am no longer conformed by the thinking of the world and my own sinful heart, but I'm transformed as I submit my mind to you. And I understand your mercies. And I look at your law and it's perfect and pleasing and good to me. And I delight in it. And I want to live it out. Friends, when that is our mindset, we could say with Paul, this is our spiritual or this is our logical worship to Him. I could do no other. This hymn that we've already sung this morning by uh, Isaac Watts, 254, has this great final line in it. Drops of grief can never repay the debt of Labio. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Can never repay the gift of grace that God's given. But we can give ourselves away as a sacrificial offering to the Lord for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do turn to You now and plead and pray that You would renew our minds in this way that our lives would be transformed that we would be so fixed on the mercies of God that we would give ourselves to Jesus and that by testing, we may discern what is the will of God, that it is good, that it is pleasing, and that it is perfect for our lives and live for Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.